welcome to Giving Life, a podcast series where we talk about the incredible life and death stories of Australians who have benefited from an organ and tissue donation. I'm your host, Adam Duke. Every episode, you'll hear a story about the highs and lows of life and how the often tragic death of one person starts an incredible process that offers a new opportunity to another. Each episode, I'm joined by my friend, award-winning photographer and liver transplant recipient, Andrew Chapman, as we talk to people around Australia about their stories of life and death. You can find out more by visiting our website at givinglife.net to hear more about our interviews and Andrew's incredible photos of our guests and the organ and tissue transplantation process. So on today's episode, we talk about the history of organ and tissue transplantation. It's not particularly long, but the progress and results that we see today show how incredibly far we've come since the pioneering early surgeries from the middle of last century. We spoke to our guest, Professor Bob Jones, the head of the liver transplant unit at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne. Bob, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure. We're going to start back when transplantation was really in its early days, and we started in the mid-50s, around when Joseph Murray transplanted the very first kidney, and it was identical twins, the Henrik twins. Can you explain why that was such a momentous event, and why did they go with identical twins? Well, it was momentous because if you had renal disease and your kidneys stopped working, you would die, and it was a pretty miserable death. And really, just prior to this, uh, attempts have been made to work out a dialysis machine to keep people alive. But essentially, renal failure meant a death sentence. So you can see the tremendous pressure from physicians trying to do something to solve this. And transplantation was clearly one of the most obvious ways to do that. The problem was, there was already experience to show that you and I could not swap organs because you would reject mine and I would reject yours. And we knew that from just simple skin graft experiments. If I took a piece of skin from me and we put it on you, it would last about a week before your body rejected. And exactly the same thing would happen with kidneys. So the identical twins solved that problem. And Joseph Murray and his team in Boston realised that. But it's still a, it was still a huge step to actually go ahead and do that. When they found out that that worked and that the kidneys were working well in the other twin, how long was it before they started to really being able to consider doing it with people that weren't directly related? Well, in the 1950s, most of the kidneys that were transplanted were between identical twins, which meant that if you had an identical twin, that was great, but if you didn't, you weren't going to get transplanted. And it was really only in the late 50s and early 60s that really successful attempts were made to have what we call allografts, where there's a complete mismatch between the immune system of the two grafts. And the way that that attempt was made was by using very large doses of immunosuppressive drugs, which at that stage were not very good mm. and had enormous side effects. So the chance of the kidney surviving and the chance of the patient surviving was actually very low. And it was a significant risk to have a kidney transplanted in 1960. And a very small number were actually done by a few pioneering units around the world. For those first pioneering units, how did they work out how to do the actual physical mechanics of the surgery? Well, interestingly, the the mechanics of the surgery were pretty much sorted out quite early on. In fact, the first attempts at uh, renal grafting were made in the early 1900s. So some of the early surgeons had sort of had an attempt of how would you put a kidney in someone else. Mm -hmm. So they kind of sorted that out relatively early on. And pretty much the same technique that was devised about 1960 is the one that we use today, or pretty close to it. I believe you've previously described it as the plumbing required. And that hasn't really changed significantly over this period of time. 
Well, it, it hasn't. Once, once the early 60s were sorted, they, they, they kind of had this arranged and they knew what to do. They had tried various places to put the kidney and the logical place was somewhere safe, easy to get to, and that was pretty much down in the right lower tummy or the left lower tummy. And that's pretty much what we use today. So if we move to Thomas Starzl, he's somebody that you worked with very closely. Can you explain how you managed to come under his tutelage? Well, Tom Starzl was the surgical pioneer par excellence for this century and last century. And uh, we owe the world owes enormous debt of gratitude to him. He was a man who took enormous risks. He established renal transplantation, so he wasn't the first to do it, but he sorted out how to do it in non-similar, non-twin patients, non-identical patients. And in the early 60s, he presented something like 70 patients who were not related, who had had a renal transplant, when the rest of the world had done about 50 total. So he really established how to do this properly. And at the same time, in the early 60s, he was attempting to do liver transplantation. So he was an extraordinary pioneer. What did you learn from Thomas Stasel? And was it the actual techniques? Uh, was it the risk-taking? It was a little bit of everything. Certainly the surgical technique, selection, and the risk-taking, and the stamina to put up and do, keep continue to do this. Uh, I mean, these are extremely difficult operations. They still are, but back in the 60s, these were extraordinary. They, they didn't have the backup and reserve. We didn't have intensive care units. We didn't have specialist anaesthetists. We didn't have all that superb equipment and knowledge that we have now. So these were really pioneering. This is trying to climb Mount Everest uh, back in the 1930s. When you were saying that you didn't have a lot of backup support, what did that technically mean for the patient and their recovery? I imagine the surgery was probably a little bit longer than it was today. Well, the surgery was longer, and also a lot of patients, this is liver transplant patients, died, you know, didn't make it through the operation. In the 60s, the survival rate at the end of the 60s was around about 25%. So four patients had that operation. Only one of them was probably going to get out of hospital and be alive at one year. So it was extraordinarily risky. And a lot of the problems that they faced, uh, they had to work out answers. Uh, for example, there's a, a very high blood loss in liver transplantation, and coping with that was the key to the success. And for Stasel, the first seven patients who were transplanted all died, largely related to massive blood loss. So around 1967, he had a hiatus, and they said, what can we do about this? And they, at that point, learned how to manage massive blood loss. And that allowed the patients to survive, and then more of them had a chance of a transplant. So some of the things were just very, very simple. Keeping the patient warm. Patients would get cold and die of what we call hypothermia in their brain term. So things that we take totally for granted now, Tom Starzl and his team uh, had to work out from scratch. When you're not having success at the start, I imagine it's a huge amount of pressure that's put on hospitals that are had doing these transplants. On the surgeons themselves, there would have been a lot of naysayers saying, this doesn't work, this is too risky. Why do you think that they pushed through and why do you think that they got to the point now where... It's accepted. That's a really good question because it takes an enormous amount of courage and uh, commitment to keep doing an operation where the patients keep dying. And the reason that they kept up with this is because, interestingly, the early liver transplant patients were all pretty much mostly children. And without this, the children were dying. So these were parents who were asking for something because they knew their child was going to die. And you had a team of doctors and surgeons who were prepared to have a go at doing something to try and prevent that. So it was the risk to the patient that drove the operations. But it did require enormous stamina. I mean, Stasel's first seven patients all died. 
I went out of hospital. It was extraordinary. Now, I mean, imagine how you, you know, do seven of them, kill seven patients. There's just no way you would, you have no career. You'd be possibly prosecuted. So it was an extraordinary feat of stamina, commitment, and total belief that this was the right thing to do and that they, they would learn how to do it and it would end up saving lives. Can you briefly describe why a liver is so difficult to transplant? Well, the liver is the largest organ in the body. And in an adult, it weighs a kilogram, a kilogram and a half, or even up to two kilograms. And it's big because it does so many things. We always like to joke that the heart's rather simple. It just pumps and the kidney just makes urine or the filter. But the liver does dozens and dozens of things. It handles the waste products. It's the food factory. It's an immunological organ. It handles all of the bodily functions, particularly blood clotting. So when you have liver failure, all of those systems start to conk out. And during the operation, there'll be a period of time where you have no liver at all. And you have to support a patient during that. So learning how to manage those liver functions that the liver does was an extremely complicated and slow process. And you could argue that the teams involved probably were slow learners. And a lot of patients really were used as guinea pigs to work out how to do this. And knowingly underwent these operations, knowing that there was an enormous risk, but uh, that they were also contributing to knowledge base, a knowledge base that would allow other patients to survive. You talked about an element of risk, and there's a risk to any surgery. Do you think that we're more risk conscious today in terms of trialling these new procedures, trialling the new drugs or the different techniques and what they would have been back then? Well, absolutely. We're more aware of patient consent and patient uh, being informed about the true risks. And that's not to say that back in the 1960s, patients weren't aware of this. They were really aware, but they were also very aware that they were going to die without it. So it was a very simple equation, I think. You know, you're facing death without it. Uh, it made the decision to, you know, you had a chance of survival if you went through this. But certainly at the moment, I think it would be impossible to do what these pioneers in surgery have done in the 1960s and 50s and 70s. It would be impossible to do that now, extremely difficult. So we're in some ways very grateful that they did attempt to do it then, because um, we probably may not have been able to introduce those treatments now. So Thomas Starzl was the first person to do a liver transplant. There are about four or five surgeons around the world interested in liver transplantation, but Starzl was the first to actually do it in a human being, which is a child, and the first to have survivors. The first three survivors were all children under the age of three. So he really was the, the guy that bit the bullet and finally did it. Before we move on to other organs, why children? Why did they start with transplanting children? Is the history of transplantation in children, so a paediatric endeavour. Mm. And it was largely because there are a small group of children who are born with a liver disease, completely normal, but they have this part of their liver that doesn't function. And without transplant, many of them would die you know, quite young, sometimes not even make it to one year. Sometimes they make it to five or six years of age. And this was a very miserable death of a combination of liver failure and starvation. So the doctors who looked after these children were desperate for any treatment, and so were the parents watching their child slowly die of the liver missing this one function that wouldn't allow them to live. So that was the driving force, and um, I have some photographs of children from one of our paediatricians here in Melbourne, uh, Arnold Smith, and Arnold says this is why we wanted to transplant these children, and they're just pitiful and sad, these poor emaciated children with distended abdomens slowly dying in their one year. 
tiny, gorgeous men and babies dying. So the driving force were the physicians and the care of the patients. And, and interestingly, when we started in Melbourne, Arnold Smith from the Children's Hospital came and said, would you be interested in transplanting children? And this is just before we started adults, uh, because he was just desperate for somebody to take care of these children for whom he could do nothing more. Let's move a couple of years ahead, 1967, and it's the first heart transplant was done in South Africa, and it was done by Christian Neving Bernard. How is that different? You talked about the heart being the blood pumping sort of thing, and I believe it's actually technically an easier surgery to do compared to the liver. Christian Barnard was, you know, has to get great credit for taking that risk. There were a couple of other people who were, you know, he he learnt that technique from, but he was the guy that actually went ahead and did it. Mm. It is a little bit more straightforward in that the actual technical side of the operation is a little simpler, but still very complex. And they, the surgeons learned how to do that operation quite early on, and it's still very much the same procedure today. So that first transplant recipient, they died about 18 days after surgery, and it was largely because of the anti-rejection drugs that were used at the time. Correct, because these drugs that were used in the 60s were really not very effective. They're largely based on steroids, prednisolone, and they're drugs that are very generally immunosuppressive, quite powerful immunosuppressive, but they have lots of side effects. They cause that sort of facial swelling and bloating and fluid retention, diabetes, and another drug that's a sort of anti-metabolic drug called azathioprine. And these two drugs had to be used in quite big doses if they stopped rejection. And it turned out the heart actually was very, it was very hard to stop rejection of the heart. It was a very potent organ for eliciting rejection. And these drugs just really went up to scratch. So most of the patients who were going to get an early heart transplant were at very high risk of rejecting that heart and that heart conking out and then dying. So at this time in the mid-late 60s, you've got a really productive time in terms of progress in transplantation. What unique circumstances led to that real pioneering work and seeing that quite rapid progress over a period of time? Well, there was a great burst of enthusiasm for heart transplantation when it started. And heart transplantation was done by Harry Windsor here in Sydney at St Vincent's Hospital. And I think it was pretty much the same year, 1968 or so. But again, it wasn't a technical issue because the, the surgeons had the technical skill to do that and the bypass pumps and machinery to do it. But it was keeping the patients alive afterwards and coping with rejection and then coping with infection. And that's where we were, none of us were very good at doing that. And it was the same problem with liver transplantation. If you did survive the operation, you were still at risk of rejection. And if you got too many drugs, you were going to die of infection. So the big problem was really keeping these patients alive, which is why early on in transplantation, the key parameter for success was one-year survival. So when I went into transplantation, the, the, the big market was how many patients are alive at one year. If you did 10 patients, how many of them are going to still be alive at one year? Mm. And there's still a hangover of that today where we still use that, but the results are so much better that it's not a very accurate parameter. But when you had only 30 or 40% of patients making it out to one year, that was superb compared with a few years ago when it was 25%. When you were starting out, it was about a quarter of people that were surviving. It just proceeded when I started, because I got I, I commenced transplantation about the time the results really started to improve. Because prior to that, you'd have to be You'd have to look at it and think, this is not a very successful treatment. <laughs> you had to get like 60, at least 60%. More than half of them had to survive. You had to make it a worthwhile treatment. And that happened really in the late 70s. Stay tuned for more from the Giving Life podcast. about the significant step that happened once cyclosporin came in around the 1980s time frame. How did that particularly change the post-surgery process? 
That, that was just an absolute revolution because by the 1970s, the technique had been worked out. Surgeons had the capability to do it, but they didn't have the drugs to keep the patient alive and prevent rejection. And around the late 1960s, cyclosporin entered the clinical care of patients and it just revolutionized the management of patients. It suddenly meant that you went from 20-30% survivals to 60 and 70% more survivals. Because it was originally founded and almost marketed and tested as an anti-cancer drug. One of their researchers had come back with soil samples, I think from a fjord in Norway, and from that they grew this fungus which produced cyclosporin. And they were looking at these byproducts of the fungus as, as a chemotherapeutic agent. And it actually turned out to be not a very good chemotherapy drug. But just as a pure coincidence, one of their scientists had decided to simultaneously test these latest agents for immunosuppressive capability. When they looked at the results with cyclosporin, they couldn't believe it. They'd never seen anything that was so powerfully immunosuppressive. Now, these are in sort of petri dishes on the bench. So within a very short time, they realized this drug really was not going to be a chemotherapy agent for cancer but it was an extraordinarily powerful agent for immunosuppression. And within a very short time, Professor Roy Kahn in Cambridge got his hands on this powder and started using it in dog transplants who were getting kidney transplants. And dogs have an enormously powerful immune system and they'll reject another kidney very quickly. And what he found out in a very short period of time was that this drug cyclosporin could actually prevent that. So it was an absolute revelation. And within two years of its discovery, it was being thought about, can we use this in human beings? Which is just, again, amazing because nobody now would ever have a drug that's available, goes from a Petri dish and soil samples to being used in patients within two years. And interesting, when I was working in Oxford, Peter Morris, who was the professor of surgery, tells a really great story of going out. Roy Kahn said, come over and have a look at this. And he walked into the lab and there were seven or eight dogs who had had a kidney transplant. And all of them, they were all alive, which was extraordinary. But he said, you know, seven of the eight dogs looked a bit under the weather. And that was partly because they were being poisoned by this drug because they didn't know the dose of it to use. They were just making it up. But there was one dog looking completely normal, jumping up and down, very happy to see Peter Morris. And Sir Roy Khan said, look at that dog. Isn't that amazing? He's had a successful transplant and he's happy. And Peter Morris said he was more impressed with the other seven who were looking pretty miserable and thinking, this drug's pretty poisonous. So it does require a lot of optimism. And, uh, and of course, we now know that those dogs, in fact, were getting, you know, two and four times the doses, 10 times the doses that they should, because nobody knew what the dose was. A lot of it's trial and error, isn't it? You need to test these things to know exactly what the dose is. If we move closer to home and into Australia, in the mid 80s was really our time when we saw a lot of pioneering in Australia. You had the first successful heart transplant, the first successful liver transplant, the first kidney transplant from a deceased donor. Why was that our time to really see that progress? The introduction of cyclosporin meant these results, the results were now good enough to make other people be suddenly interested in this. And of course, patients were very interested. You know, if I'm talking to you and you're saying you've got a 20% chance of making it, you might not be that enthused, but we've now got a treatment that has a 70% chance of you surviving and doing well. So it was really patients who started to drive this. And some of these services were not available in Australia. So, for example, liver failure patients in Australia couldn't have a liver transplant in the early 80s. Many of them went overseas, and particularly children. And there were several emotional campaigns with fundraising in the newspapers to help raise money to pay for transplants in the United States. Uh, and that eventually started to get to the government because pressure was put on them to say, why should we have only a few patients be able to have this treatment? And the government started to look at it and think, well, maybe we do need to think about introducing these services here in Australia. But it was largely the drug that drove the success following the introduction of cyclosporin that allowed this to go ahead. 
So you're applying your trade here in Australia at the time. What was the reaction that you got from the community once you started doing these surgeries? Well, there was a lot of talk about it starting in Australia in, in the mid, early, mid 1980s. And at that point, there was a lot of controversy about it. It was thought to be experimental. It was thought to be dangerous. It was particularly thought to be experimenting on children. It was thought that the results were so bad that this should not be introduced. There were editorials in newspapers and in the Medical Journal of Australia saying that this is a bad thing. Transplantation of the liver particularly should not be done. It was a philosophical thing. It was sort of unethical to do it. So there's tremendous pressure not to go ahead and do it. But interestingly, who drove it? The parents drove it. Parents with a dying child were communicating overseas and saying, I want my child to have this chance. So despite the doctors and the ethicists and the senior bureaucrats thinking this wasn't a good idea, patient demand really drove it, and particularly with children. So the government decided in the early 80s that they would hold a national inquiry into whether we should be doing liver transplantation. Secondly, who should do it? It's called the Mackay Inquiry. And uh, it decided eventually that we should be doing this, we should be offering this treatment. And it was elected to give it to Professor Ross Sheel in Sydney, who was Australia's only professor of transplantation. And just as an by interesting byline, Ross Sheel had done Australia's first liver transplant in 1968. The patient did not survive but he had been a pioneer of transplantation here in Australia and probably deserved to be the guy that was awarded the program in Sydney. Can you describe the first time that you did a liver surgery on somebody and saw the blood pumping through that donated organ that you just put into somebody else? Can you describe that? Everybody loves that moment in the liver transplant, particularly where the liver goes from this pale, anemic organ to suddenly pinking up and over a very few minutes becoming like a normal liver. And it's quite dramatic. You know, it occurs in an operation that can go 10 hours and there's about a 10 minute period in the middle where the liver is effused with blood, turns pink and starts working. So it's a magical moment. Everybody loves that moment. The anaesthetists start documenting changes. They can measure all sorts of things that the liver's now doing and they get quite excited if it works well. Uh, and so do all the team. In the theater, there's a surgical team. It's not just the surgeons. Obviously, there's a lot of people that are working quite closely to make sure that the patients are well supported through surgery. What role does the anaesthetist play in this whole process? Well, it's a really good point. It's a very large group. It takes a dozen people or so in that operating room to get a patient through. And probably the most important person is the anaesthetist, uh, or anaesthetists, because we always have at least two, plus techs that support them. So we have a couple of techs, a couple of anaesthetists, and another one, so probably five or six people who run the top end. And the anaesthetists know they're important because they know the surgeons down the other end causing all the havoc, patient, making the patient try and bleed to death, and they're the people at the top end trying to keep the patient alive. So it's, it's, a, it's a Mount Everest of anaesthesia, and the anaesthetists who do it are extraordinary. They love the challenge of this incredibly metabolically unstable patient, hemodynamically unstable, blood loss, temperature problems. They have to be the patient's liver for a large chunk of that operation. They have to take over the liver's function, and they're doing this with multiple lines, machinery, and if you look at it, you stunned how you wonder how they keep track of all the cables and tubes and dials. So an extraordinarily important role. The surgery is rather simple in the end of the day. You're taking the liver out and you're sewing a new one in. So it's, the surgical part's relatively straightforward compared with the anesthesia. And from when you first started doing liver transplants to today, what's changed in terms of the operation itself? 
Well, look, the, the simplest thing is probably just experience. And I think it's liken it to being a trader. You know, if you decide to go and fix your plumbing yourself, you know, you battle away and maybe take two days to do something that a trader would do in an hour and a half. So there's no doubt just having an experienced team makes everything smoother. The decision-making is much better. We know who to do, when to do them. We know what to do during the operation. The actual technical side, we're still doing the same thing, but we're doing it better and more efficiently. And we're doing it in patients in whom we would never have done it in the past. And in fact, one of the sad things I look back on is thinking that we had a lot of restrictions on who we would transplant in the 80s and 90s. Too old or too frail. And when, when I say too old, you know, sort of over 50. And now we really have no age limit. Too frail, you know, if you had some sort of other problem, kidney problem, we wouldn't think about transplanting it. And that was because we didn't think you'd survive. And we've now learned gradually that, in fact, you will. If you take care and you've got really good anesthesia, you can have people go into this operation who are actually pretty unstable, pretty crook, and actually get them through alive at the other end. But there were many patients that we turned down who we retrospect now would, would never have done that. We would transplant them. And that's a significant thing that comes with time, isn't it? The process that you consider for something which is a significant surgery and a significant thing, that now you're considering a lot more options. You're widening your availability to people. Oh, very much. It's, it's very much so, yes. Is there a couple of stories that really stick with you in terms of the recovery process, the personalities of people that you've been transplanting? Oh, we have, there, there are dozens of wonderful stories, um, particularly of children. I remember one young eight-year-old who had a very distended abdomen and had a disease that she was born with. She, she had this distended abdomen for most of her life. And really going to school was impossible because her tummy was so big and kids made fun of her. And, and she wanted a transplant purely that, so she could wear a dress. And, um, and after her successful transplant, she turned up in the clinic in bobby socks and one of those dresses that the American teenagers used to wear if you spun around it flared out and she was just very keen just to spin around and show she had a waist and she had this very tight skirt so that's just a wonderful story another was uh, the very third patient we transplanted here at the a 10 year old child who uh, when she was 16 came to the clinic with a photograph of her debutante ball she was the debutante and she was talking to our nurses about the uh, dress she and she'd made the dress with her mother and she was very proud of it and one of the nurses said, the amazing thing isn't the fact that she made the dress, is that she's alive. And she's 16 and she went to a debutante ball. The child herself was just interested in what a pretty dress she had made and got to wear. So there's some wonderfully interesting stories. And another more recent was uh, an older woman who'd been a school teacher, uh, aged about 50, and she had gone into progressive liver failure from hepatitis C that she had contracted from a blood transfusion during the pregnancy. Uh, and so she'd had to stop teaching. And she got transplanted, but the hepatitis C came back in the new liver. So within a year, she was dying again, unable to teach during that year, and dying of new hepatitis C that was wiping out her new liver. And at the time that she was about to die, we got access to these brand new, exciting hepatitis C drugs. So she started them in, late in the year, and two months after that, got a transplant. We didn't know how long she had to stay on these drugs. She got a brand new shiny liver, stayed on the drugs, and six months after that, about May the following year, she didn't have hepatitis C. She had a brand new normal liver. And her biggest concern coming to the clinic was when could she go back to school because her class was missing her. So it was amazing to be in a clinic with someone. And their big concern was, I'm really desperate to get back to class. The amazing thing was that she was alive. And not only that, she didn't have hepatitis C. They're just extraordinary stories. It really was a miracle. 
From a technical side, how do you actually decide who gets a transplant? There's a long list of people that are potentially on the list for a transplant. And how does that decision making go into who actually gets that donated liver? Well, the first, the, the slightly bigger question is the first question we have to ask is, does this patient need a liver transplant? Is there any chance that they could get better or could be tidied over for a while? And secondly, once they are on the list, we have to prioritise what, you know, what order. And we can rank the patients in sickness. And we have some quite good predictors to say how sick an individual patient is and what are their chances of making it to Christmas, for example. So obviously, the sicker you are, the higher up the list you go. So it isn't based on time on the waiting list. It's based on the risk of dying within the next few weeks or months. So you could turn up on Monday and go to the top of the list immediately, you know, if you're dying. And uh, you bypass everyone else who's been sitting there for weeks or months. So prioritising the patient on sickness is felt by the community to be fair and, and equitable. But we have a lot of other parameters. We have to look at size. You have you know, big human livers that can't go into smaller humans. And there are lots of plumbing issues you have to look at. So sometimes you'll have to drop down the list, not do number one or two, and maybe do number three or four, just because of anatomical reasons or some sort of practical administrative reason that means that that liver can only be used successfully in this patient. So there are a lot of parameters to look at and, uh, and a lot of compromises that have to be made. If we've got someone who's desperately sick and not going to be alive this weekend, then we'll take a much greater risk. We might use a donor that's much older. We might take a donor that looks a bit small. We might take a donor where the pipes and the plumbing don't match up properly. And ideally, you wouldn't use that, but we don't have a choice. You either do it or this patient will die. So it's very much a risk and reward scenario. It's very much risk and reward. The patient's taking a risk with every single donor, and some of the risks, sometimes those risks are going to be much higher. And we'll take those risks if it's justified. In 2010, you led a team that completed Australia's first intestinal transplant. How complex is the surgery and recovery process for intestines, say, versus a liver or a heart or a kidney? Well, it's a whole new ballgame. Intestine is this extraordinary organ that has been neglected. But all of us are very conscious of our gut. And one of the worst possible things that can happen to you is to have gut intestinal failure and not be able to eat because you will starve to death. And the only thing that will keep you alive is if you remain on IV intravenous feeding. And for an adult to remain on intravenous feeding alone, you have to be fed for 12 to 14 hours a day. And if you don't get that food intravenously, you will die. So it is an extraordinary commitment to stay alive if you have intestinal failure. It's a terrible, terrible condition. Luckily for us Australians, it's very rare. And there are very few Australians who are in full-blown intestinal failure. But there are a small number of children and adults. And intestinal transplantation is a way of salvaging them, giving them a new gut so that they can get up in the morning and have breakfast have lunch, have dinner, wander around and be very, very normal. So it's an extraordinary procedure. It's also an operation that you can replace part of the gut or the whole gut. So you can go from the top to the bottom and have nothing left and replace the lot. And you can throw in a liver and a kidney too, or you can just replace parts of it. So intestinal transplantation includes the stomach, the duodenum, the pancreas, the small intestine, possibly the liver, the colon, possibly a kidney, or any combination of those things. So it's an extraordinarily complex and difficult operation. And interestingly, it was pioneered by Professor Tom Starzl, who attempted this again in the early 60s and 70s. So he was a man who was pioneering not only kidney transplantation and liver, but just about every other type of transplantation that you could think of. What do you typically go for younger donors when you're looking at intestinal transplants? Well, the intestine turns out to be incredibly fussy in particular and very delicate. So younger intestines are much more likely to survive a transplant than you know, a 70-year-old patient who donates an intestine. So we're still very limited by the number of 
donors who will be suitable for intestinal donation. But the big trade-off is there aren't many Australians who need it. So there are quite a few donors out there who would be suitable intestinal donors, but we don't actually have a lot of intestinal patients waiting. But the testin turns out to be interestingly very interesting and complex organ and wonderfully difficult to look after and manage. It takes a lot, a lot of skill and experience to get patients through and look after them. Organ donation rates have been increasing since 2009, 2010 at a fairly healthy rate. And that would have an impact for you and your team in terms of the amount of surgeries that you're actually doing now. How has that really influenced your ability to be able to do as many as you can and to be able to service that, to have enough surgeons, have enough support staff to make sure that you can deliver? Give me what your expectations are around making sure that people get the opportunity to get a transplant. It, it is a wonderful problem to have in a way that we're so overloaded with donors that we uh, you know, have a problem with the workload. And we really have to thank Kevin Rudd, I think, because Kevin, when he was Prime Minister, put a huge sum of money into a federal program of organ donation. And it's taken many years, but it's really paid off, particularly here in Victoria, who had a very committed group of intensive care doctors who run with this. So we now have an extraordinarily high donor rate in Victoria. It was running one of the lowest in the world. If you go back a decade or more, we had about nine donors per million population. It's now 27. So we're getting up there with the best of world's practice. And the downside of it, or the upside of it is, lots of patients are being transplanted who would never have previously had a chance. So it's an extraordinary gift from one Australian to the other, and it's happening in increasing numbers. Final question for you, Bob. We've talked a lot about the past. What are the real milestones in the future around transplantation, do you think? What are the key things that we would expect to see over the next five, ten years that could really change the game again? Well, it's a really interesting question. Now, we just A couple of guys we were just talking about that recently and thinking of careers. If you were starting out in a career of transplantation now, would it last? I don't think it will. I think in maybe 30 years, people will look back and say, oh, the dark old days, they used to actually remove someone's organs and replace them with someone else's. I think the future will probably lie with stem cell and organ regeneration. Um, and we will look back on this era and go, this was you know, an extraordinarily bleak time. Um, however, it's a long way away. It's not around the corner. Five to seven years, we will still need liver transplantation to save lives. We will still need kidney transplantation. 50 years, perhaps not. We hope that's the problem to have then. Bob, thanks very much for your time. That's all for today's episode of Giving Life. You can find out more about our interviews, Andrew's amazing photos, and how you can get in contact by simply visiting givinglife.net. Thanks to our guest, Professor Bob Jones, to Andrew Chapman, Mark Tarpey for his editing and sound mixing, and Doc White for our theme music. To hear more of Doc White's country blues-inspired music, visit docwhite.com.au. If this has inspired you to take action, you can register to be an organ tissue donor in Australia by going to donatelife.gov.au. It only takes two minutes. And if you're listening internationally, search for your organ donation service wherever you're listening. Thanks, we'll see you next time.